Good morning, church. My name is Ryan Hembry, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. I'm excited to be here this morning. I, I love gathering with all of you. And it's been a joy to go through the book of Romans together. It's been challenging in a lot of ways, and it's been encouraging in a lot of ways. And I've specifically enjoyed studying these verses that we'll be going through this morning because they highlight our unmistakable need for the gospel. Mosaic Church was planted five years ago with the vision to cover every square inch of Richardson with the gospel and with its fruits. And I really believe that these three verses, to live these three verses out, would be such a radical way of living, and they would serve as a living testimony to the one true God. I'm originally from Odessa, Texas. Odessa is famous for uh, oil and gas and high school football, Friday Night Lights. Neither of my parents, though, worked in the energy sector, and I played soccer, so I was kind of out on both of them. But growing up, I was fiercely competitive as a kid. I absolutely hated to lose in anything. Um, But I grew up the youngest of three brothers, and so in my house, I got a lot of third place. And I don't know if it had to do with being the third born, or if it's just how God made me, but I always had this strong sense of justice. I wanted things to be reconciled, I wanted wrongs to be made right or wrongs to be paid for. One of my grandfathers was a storyteller, and he he liked to tell the same stories over and over. He kind of had his favorites that he would tell on repeat. And one of the stories that we heard quite a bit was, I don't even remember what happened. This is a story that um, I was too young to remember exactly what happened, but I heard it so many times that I can retell it now. But my older brothers had... Um, gotten together and done something that left me in tears. And so I was frustrated and crying, and enough time had passed that we were able to move on and watch a movie. And so I'm sitting on the couch in front of the TV, and they're laying in front of me um, watching the movie, and they're, they're over it, um, but I'm still stewing. I'm still frustrated about it. And I let enough time pass that they had completely forgotten about this confrontation. And after a while, goes to the movie, I jump off the couch and run over and just cannonball on both of their backs. And um, I don't know why, um, but my my grandfather loved that it was now the older brothers that were crying and that they were frustrated. And we must have shared the same worldview of justice because he really did love to tell that story. It is interesting, though, how often our instincts fly in the face of Scripture Because verses 19 through 21 of Romans 12 don't leave an inch for the type of justice that I'm often inclined towards. I've realized that I often want others to face justice while I desire grace for myself. Does anyone else feel that? I really don't want to reap what I've sowed. I know what the wages are for my sin. And so when we are faced with verses like these, these verses this morning are very challenging When we are faced with verses like these, it is imperative that we read them in the context that they're written in. Otherwise, they will seem entirely unrealistic. They will seem impossible. And so if we look back briefly at chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans, it describes God's wrath toward the unrighteous, his judgment and the law that we are measured by. There is the famous and true proclamation that no one is righteous. No one is righteous. And after setting the stage with such bad news, Paul begins to introduce the good news of the gospel, describing how God made a way for man to reconcile with him. 
to be justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And so it is with this background that we get to chapter 12. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to read it in its entirety. Romans chapter 12 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, and let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing something you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. Verses 19 through 21 fall within this section that the ESV titles, Marks of a True Christian. Much of chapter 12 reads like wisdom literature, similar to the book of Proverbs in its short staccato exhortations. Importantly, these marks of a true Christian are what the gospel creates in us. These habits and these practices are not the root of the gospel, but they are the fruit of the gospel. Does that make sense? Doing these things does not make us a Christian, but being a Christian should incline our hearts toward these things. Verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul has some incredibly challenging exhortations in verses 19 through 21. And he wisely and he rightly lays the foundation by calling the reader beloved. 
Beloved is a term of great affection, unconditional love, which is an interesting use of the word in a letter to a church that he hasn't visited. Elsewhere in the book of Romans where the word is used, Paul is referring to friends, beloved brothers in Christ that he is hoping the church in Rome will greet with kindness. Think of someone in your life that you would call beloved. Who is someone in your life that you would call beloved? Why would Paul use that phrase here with people that he doesn't know? Well, as it turns out, there is great wisdom to Paul prefacing this challenging set of exhortations by invoking his shared relationship with these Christians in Rome that he has never met. It is specifically because of their shared relationship in Christ that it would be possible to receive exhortations this challenging. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To avenge is to retaliate. It is to even the score. My boss said he tells his children frequently, scorekeepers always lose. They always lose. If you're keeping score, you will always lose because either you're seeing somebody else not doing as much as you're doing and you're frustrated or you're seeing somebody maybe who's doing more than you're doing and you're in shame about that. Scorekeepers always lose. And frequently, we want to take justice into our own hands but when we, have we ever been qualified to take something out of God's hand? Why would we even try? As humans, we have such a strong, innate desire for justice to be done, though. And that being the case, how is it possible for us to decline to avenge ourselves? Two ways come to mind. Understanding the gravity of our sin and remembering the depth of our forgiveness. That's how we can decline to avenge ourselves, by understanding the gravity of our sin and by remembering the depth of our forgiveness. When King David committed adultery, he had the husband of Bathsheba murdered in an attempt to both cover his sin and to perpetuate in his adultery. And he had an advisor named Nathan who came to David and he began to tell David this story. And and Nathan said that there was this poor shepherd who had very little, but he had a lamb who he, lo- the lamb he loved greatly. And then there was a rich man who had great wealth, he had flocks, he had abundance. And this rich man had a visitor, and so he wanted to take a lamb um, to serve for his guest. And unwilling to take out of his own abundance, he took the lamb of the poor shepherd. And David, hearing this story, has his sense of justice triggered And he was furious at the notion that someone with so much would steal from someone with so little. And it's interesting hearing this story because, right, you see it. You see the analogy that Nathan's setting up, and David doesn't. David in his sin is just oblivious to the tie in this story. In David's mind, he would never do something so evil. But Nathan begins to explain to David that it is, in fact, David who is this rich man in the story, who stole Bathsheba from her husband, and suddenly David's eyes are opened and he realizes the gravity of his sin. This is precisely how we can refuse to to avenge ourselves, to realize the weight of our own sin and to remember the depth of our forgiveness. We talked earlier in this Roman series about the parable of the unforgiving servant. And it's this servant that owes a king some insurmountable debt, 
a debt that he could spend his entire lifetime trying to pay off and he couldn't do it. I read a Gospel Coalition article recently that compared the amount that was owed to the king to about $7 billion. $7 billion with a B. And so this servant, his, he and his family were gonna be sold into slavery to begin to pay off this debt. But the servant asks for forgiveness and it wasn't just that he was given more time to repay the debt, he never could have repaid it. He was completely forgiven of this insurmountable debt. And this man, immediately after being forgiven, goes to another to, who owes him the equivalent of about $10,000, and he has him thrown in jail. And the other servants see this. They see this injustice, and they go to the king. And what Jesus is imparting here, what Jesus is saying is that whoever offends us, Whoever offends us and however we are offended, it pales in comparison to the debt that we are forgiven. Seven billion to one. I do think, though, it was a helpful mention in this article to call out that $10,000 is still incredibly costful. It's, it's still incredibly costly. Because if we, and we were, we were forgiven an insurmountable debt. But it's still costly to forgive others. To forgive somebody $10,000 of debt, that would be uh, incredibly difficult. It is costly to give up vengeance. But when we view our sins rightly and when we remember our forgiveness, we are suddenly less apt to respond with vengeance. It's hard to judge others when we realize that positionally before God, we are no better than our enemies. Not until Christ graciously saved us. And it's part of why earlier in Romans 12, Paul encouraged readers not to think more highly of themselves than they ought. We need the humility that the gospel brings to rightly view ourselves and those around us. Verse 20 says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So if taking vengeance is our natural bent as humans, and we know that we are called not to pursue that path, how should we instead respond? Verse 20 tells us that a neutral path, just the act of not taking vengeance, isn't fully answering God's call. The world probably would say that, though. If, if, we were, if there was some great offense on us and we just took the neutral path, the world would probably say that's, that's a, good, a great response. But Paul says to the contrary, and he exhorts readers to go further, to meet the needs of those who have offended us, to feed them if they're hungry, and to give them something to drink if they're thirsty. And I do want to point out, though, that showing kindness to our enemies doesn't mean that we are meant to allow evil to reign unimpeded. This is not a call to let sin go unchecked. There is a difference, though, between confronting out of love and retaliating out of anger. Answering this call is so incredibly radical, but we are reflecting the same grace that we have received from God to those around us. And Paul says that this act will heap burning coals on their heads. There are a variety of interpretations for what Paul means by heaping, this heaping of coals. And it can sound a bit confusing because it comes right after this 
radical call to kindness. And so it sounds retaliatory in nature. And it does seem like a contradiction if the purpose of feeding your enemy is to subsequently have the opportunity to heap coals on their head. But instead, I think, by, I think what Paul means here by heaping coals is that your actions are igniting a response. By showing great kindness to an enemy, it fans the flames for a response. It gives your, your enemy the opportunity to repent or to further harden their hearts. Importantly, the purpose of our actions is not meant to cause a response, but instead Paul is explaining what the response to these actions will be. This interpretation fits with the overall theme of chapter 12, to bless others. And it's in the very same way that God's blessing back with Abraham was given so that Abraham and his generations would be a blessing to the world. God's desire for the Christian, for his people, for us, Mosaic Church, is that we would live our lives in a way that blesses the world and glorifies him. I like how Pastor Worley worded it. When we bless our enemies, we shame their scorn. We embarrass their hostility. In this key phrase, we invite them to repent. We are finite creatures, though. We are not a bottomless well of the love we would need to constantly bless others. But the Christian is given access to an endless ocean of grace in Jesus Christ. And it is with this power behind us that we move into the final challenge in verse 21. Do not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Verse 21 is a good summary verse to Romans chapter 12 in its entirety. It's a call to remember the gospel to remember what we were saved from and what we are saved to. Again, it's countercultural and against our more natural instinctual response. It's much easier to be overcome by evil, to be tempted to repay evil with evil, to fall into despair when we are overwhelmed, to become hopeless when we face adversity. It's extremely difficult and it's extremely costly, on the other hand, to overcome evil with good. To be, able, to be able to overcome evil with good, we must be set apart, holy. Overcoming evil with good takes holy love, holy living, and holy forgiveness. Overcoming evil with good takes holy love, holy living, and holy forgiveness. Holy living, excuse me, holy love can look like praying for your enemies and not just praying for their repentance but for God to bless them, for God to be gracious to them, to make his face to shine upon them and to give, him, to give them peace. We have to remind ourselves that those who have offended us, those who have hurt us deeply are image bearers. They are beloved by God. Remembering the depth of our forgiveness that we have been afforded so that we can draw from that well to love others who don't deserve it. Holy living, I notice a major difference in my own life when I'm surrounding myself with the things of God rather than the things of this world. Holy living encourages the mindset needed to love and to forgive. I confess that my heart is drawn to so many things of this world, its comforts and its distractions. 
One of the things that I ask for prayer for frequently is accountability for how I spend my time. Because when I surround myself with the things of this world, I am apt to respond in worldly ways. And when I am in the word and when I am praying consistently and storing up scripture in my heart, inevitably my responses more closely reflect Christ. Holy forgiveness. I intentionally did not put this one first on the list because we don't need repentance of our enemies to love them first, to live holy, or to forgive Worldly forgiveness is only extended after the offending party repents. Holy forgiveness, on the other hand, is not dependent at all on the other party, but it's forgiving as we were first forgiven ourselves. The Bible is full of of people who sinned greatly, who murdered or cheated or ran far from God, and the Lord was gracious and gentle in his response when what was deserved was wrath and justice. Where in your life are you tempted to extend a calloused response when you are offended? Can you think of someone in your life who, when you spend time with him, you walk away frustrated, um, who have offended you historically? Can you think of someone to whom it would be radical to respond to them with undeserving forgiveness, who it would be such a... uh, just a proclamation to the world of God's goodness if we responded to them with the call here in Romans 12, 19 through 21. And then lastly, do you spend time meditating on the sinful life that God has pulled you out of? Not to dwell in shame, but to consistently stir up gratefulness toward the Father and subsequently gentleness toward others. You know, we have a weekly reminder in our gathering to remember the cost of our sin and the fact that we didn't have to pay for that cost. We will receive the Lord's Supper here in a moment, and I would like to invite you to spend some time in prayer thinking about just that, the depth of our sin, but God's ocean of grace generously poured out to redeem his people. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to gather, to worship together, to praise your name. And God, we do pray that we would realize, even this morning, the weight of our sin and correspondingly the depth of your forgiveness. And God, we pray that we wouldn't um, go long without remembering those things. And Father, we pray that it would be out of that that we would live our lives being gracious and kind to others and that the way we would live our lives would be such a testimony to your goodness. Father, we love you. We pray these things in your name by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.